Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. We have yet again made the advance from one chapter to another. Can I get a woohoo? Yeah. <laughs> um, there, uh, there is a weightiness or a heaviness when it comes to preaching and proclaiming God's word. There's also a heaviness that should be present as we read it. Uh, the question to preachers is often how much of the text or how long of a sermon is necessary. Um, but the real difficulty isn't really putting, uh, putting time limits on the thing. The real difficulty is to make sure that I'm preaching it correctly and, and how, much, um, how much more should our reading of Scripture be the exact same practice? Um, are we, are the, the question we should always be asking is, are, am I really understanding it? Uh, did I really get the context? Um, those really are the weighty questions that we have to deal with when we're reading God's word. And not just because we want to be right about something, because don't we all just like being right, but, but more, more we should be reading because we want to glorify God. We want to read in a way that honors him. Um, so one of the most difficult challenges we face as modern readers of the Bible today, because remember, for the first several, well, just over a thousand years, well, depending on how you say just over, but for, for about 15 to 1600 years, people couldn't read the word of God readily as we can today. Uh, the modern invention of the actual print Bible is that, modern. So... Uh, one of the most difficult challenges we face as modern Bible readers today is trying to figure out the difference between the prescriptive, what we're told to do in Scripture, from the descriptive, what we're told about in Scripture. And what makes that challenge such a challenge is that often the prescribed and described are in the same paragraph and sometimes even the exact same sentence. Um, and mind you, a paragraph didn't exist in the Greek or the Hebrew. It was just linking of thoughts. So um, other times it's difficult to determine the distinction because we realize all scripture is profitable, right? So I can get an application from all of scripture. Uh, it has implications for my life. Uh, therefore, and this is a wrong assumption, when it comes to our reading of a text, we might determine that every word of what we read is somehow geared or catered toward us. It's not. Uh, most of scripture was written with particular people in mind. And so therefore, we have to determine what it meant to them before we can understand what it means to us. You following? All right. I got one head nod. No, I'm just kidding. There, there are other challenges we face in reading scripture, right? Like translation or, or maybe the verifiability of a fact. But... I still think that the, the distinction between prescribed and described remains one of the most difficult, uh, and I think it will remain one of the most difficult throughout all of our days. And that's actually the problem we come to in our text today. Now, I really labored over it. I was actually going to do the first 15 verses of Matthew 10 because it kind of goes into the same thing, but I, I realized I wanted to give a little bit more justice to some of the things that Jesus says. Um, our text for today is verses 1 through 7, and it covers three things. An introduction from Matthew, 
Uh, so that's number one. Number two, who was told to go? And number three, where they were told to go. So in most Bibles, I'll be cutting short a paragraph. But it's okay. We just cut and choose what we want from the Bible anyway. So I'm just kidding. That's terrible. Um, it's really, again, because I want to make sure we have the time and liberty to explore the statements of Jesus um, next week uh, and how they relate to us as Christians today versus how they meant or how, th how they were meant towards the original audience. So let's go ahead and read. So Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no towns of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. So the first verse, verse one, is a summary of what we call chapter 10. If you read just that one verse, you get all of chapter 10, essentially boiled down to a single sentence. Uh, that's not uncommon for Matthew. Matthew very often would institute a change, uh, whether of scenery or locale or purpose. Uh, we, we had it in chapter four. We had, a, we had a summary in chapter seven. We had then another summary in chapter nine. So sentences like 10.1 are here to indicate that, again, a change of scenery or purpose. And in this case, Matthew is actually indicating a change of both, uh, but primarily of purpose. Because after, after chapter 9, Matthew starts to organize his gospel thematically. And if you compare it with other gospels, you're, you're, you're sitting there wondering, like, this is out of place. This didn't happen before this. Luke is very, very chronological. So therefore, like, who's wrong? Who's right? Matthew or Luke? So <coughs> really... <laughs> Excuse me. Really, the uh, the change here shows that Matthew is trying to kind of organize the gospel through theme, because if you were to pick up Luke, you would miss this whole section uh, because it's spread out throughout a couple chapters. Actually, it's kind of summarized too. Luke was really good at summary. I'm not. I'm not very good at that. Uh, and and verse one actually ten one serves as a literal answer to the prayer that Jesus told his disciples to pray in 937 to 38. Remember that last week? Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So here we have the Lord of the harvest, Jesus Christ himself, showing exactly what that looked like. Uh, we don't know the time frame between the end of chapter 9 and, the, and uh, the beginning of chapter 10. But it's logical to assume, especially based on Luke's account, that there really was some time between. Um, Matthew, uh, again, Matthew is ordering thematically. So we're going to hit these themes. Uh, it's going to be this whole chapter, what it looks like when Jesus sends his apostles out and what it looks like uh, while they're in ministry. 
Um, later in this sermon, we'll actually turn to Luke 10, which covers a similar situation to Matthew 10, 1 through 7. So you don't have to turn there now. It shares actually some extremely similar details, um, except it's not just the apostles that Jesus is sending out. He sends out 72. So either Matthew's bad at math or Luke is bad at math, right? Um, 10 plus 2 is uh, 72. No. No, that, that's, that's not the case. Um, I, I want to make clear that, that Matthew 10 and Luke 10 are different situations, but they share a lot of similarities. Jesus, this is not actually a harmonizing problem. This is not actually a, you know, somebody's right and somebody's wrong. It's, it's actually that it's two instances, and Jesus said mm, basically the same things. So there we go. Harmonization problem solved. Uh, you'll probably never be asked what... Which do you think is right, Matthew 10 or Luke 10? You'll probably have nev never have anybody ask you that question, but if you were to sit <coughs> in a Thompson Chain reference Bible and read all the references, you might sit there and wonder, why does that say 72 and this says 12? So which one is right? Both. There you go. Um, notice also that Christ called these men to himself to send them out. He's the one giving them, them authority. Right? This is not an authority in and of themselves over unclean spirits and all manner of sicknesses because all true authority comes from God and Jesus is imparting it especially on the apostles. So when we read those first two views, verses, or I'm sorry, that first verse in Matthew 10, as I'm getting distracted, uh, we read that Jesus calls the 12 to himself. He gives them authority. That's it, Right? It's all from God. God is the one who called. God is the one who gave authority. So, in giving this authority, why did he do it? Was this because Jesus had massive compassion over, over, over Jewish towns? That he wanted to just eradicate illness? No. No, much like when Jesus did his miraculous ministry, he was proving, like, this is, this is actually different. In, G, in the first century, there were tons of traveling rabbis. There were tons of, of people who traveled around and taught, and many of them actually claimed miraculous gifts of healing and power and all that stuff. And so Jesus is proving, I can actually do this. And now not only is Jesus actually able to do this, but, G, but through Jesus, these other guys are able to do it too, these specific 12. So he's giving this to prove, he's giving this power to them to prove the distinctiveness of his own ministry, that his authority is, in fact, over all these ravages of sin, the existence of demonic possession, the existence of, of disease, of affliction, of blindness, of deafness. Jesus' power and authority is absolute, and he's sharing some of that with these 12 men. So the purpose, again, of this whole experience is to validate Jesus' ministry among all the people that they went and saw. That actually is important as we carry on. Actually, next week it's going to be really important. Um, so then we get the second section. We get verses 2 to 4. Who was told to go? Right? So we've got who, was, who gave the power over to them, or not over to them, but who, gave, who by his authority gave them authority. And then we have the 12 
the 12 dudes listed, right? We've got, uh, we, we've, we've got Peter and Andrew and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Thomas and Matthew, who the, who's the author of this gospel, another guy named James, some dude named Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, in verse 2, there's actually this, this statement, the names of the 12 apostles. That's important because that's the only time in Matthew's gospel Matthew refers to these guys as apostles. Now, have you used the word apostle in your daily speech in the last week? I mean, not, no, probably not. It's not like you've, you've looked at the person you're sending to the store and you're saying, you are an apostle of mine. Go fetch for me milk. <laughs> you haven't done that. But in the Greek, it was actually a really common word uh, to be sent by someone. And if you, were, if, if, if you were being sent, it would be the Greek word apostello. There, there's where we get the word apostle is actually from this Greek word, right? But Matthew is using it not in a verb form, but he's using it in a noun form. And he's calling these 12 the sent out. So the sent ones, which I know is bad grammar. If my dad's watching, he's probably going to comment. and He's going to say ones should never be or one should never be pluralized. I got that my whole life. So so Matthew is referring to these 12 sent ones. Or if you're going to link it even more grammatically, those sent by Jesus. The 12 sent ones. Peter, Andrew, James, John, so forth, a guy named Thaddeus. I love that. You've never really heard of Thaddeus. You just know that he's one of the 12. He fell into obscurity. So these men, these 12 men, were explicitly commanded to do certain things. But it was for these 12 men. 10-1 is not a statement for all Christians. 10.1 is a summary statement for these 12 people. So that means that we should not read this next section, this whole chapter, as direct commands to us Christians today. It doesn't mean that. It's described. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. You are not commanded to go cast demons out. That is not in this chapter. These men are specifically listed by Matthew, charged by Jesus with specific commands as a ministry of, these sent, of being a sent one of Jesus. Now, we can look at the commands and warnings of this chapter and we can prepare some implications for ourselves. And it's, it's here that I really, I, I, I need to make clear, this is a huge caution. Because if we're not careful, we can read this chapter and get some really wrong ideas. When Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease, or yeah, heal every disease and every affliction, it was to them, the apostles, specifically. That's not authority given to you and I. It's not. Well, don't Christians have authority over demons, you might ask me? No. Oh, you weren't expecting that one. <laughs> no, no, not directly like the apostles had. 
not directly like the 72 had. You and I have no authority in and of ourselves to cast Satan out of our closets, to, uh, to shout demons out of, out of people, to announce healing from cancer. We do not have the ability in and of ourselves to do any of that. Whether the flu, cancer, or COVID, we do not have authority over it. Only God has authority over those things. Which is exactly why this chapter is so miraculous and distinct and special and unique. Because Jesus gives that authority to these 12 dudes. Now I realize that there's some out there, I don't mean out there, I mean out, out there, who try to logic it out that Christians, since they have the Holy Spirit, therefore they have the power of God in them. But listen to me, the Holy Spirit is not a power, it's a person. A person with thoughts, with intentions, with, 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 with uh, limitations that actually God the Holy Spirit imposes on, on himself or itself. Uh, there's, no, there's no masculinity or femininity applied to the Holy Spirit in, in terms of grammar, although we have said he historically. To have God residing in himself, it's an incredible gift to a Christian. It's an incomparable grace that we're convicted of our sins, not of our, own not of our own consciousness, but of God himself. Have you thought of that as a gift of the Holy Spirit? That when you do wrong, it's not that you realized it, it's that God showed it to you. You have sinned, and then you feel guilty for it. We are comforted by God the Spirit. We are helped by God the Spirit. We're strengthened, emboldened, given words before kings by God the Spirit. But make sure you hear my words carefully. None of those actions are of you. None of them are of me. They're actions of God. We just happen to be the instrument of it. So, for anybody that might think, oh, I have the power to cast demons out. No, you don't. Only God does. Pray to him. Ask him. If you have an illness, pray. Don't announce to your foot, you are not broken. That's not the way this works. <laughs> it's not the way it, 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 <coughs> it's worked for anyone except the 12 apostles and then again the 72 for a time period. You, re you read the apostle Paul who's not listed here as an apostle, but is sent out and considered an apostle beginning in Acts 9. Um, and you'll hear him frequently attributing success to God and not to himself, won't you? It's not about his power. Actually, there's one point in 2 Corinthians where he just kind of loses it. And he, uh, he, he, he says straight up, hey, I, go ahead and listen to my madness here. But for the most part, when he talks about his ministry, it's not his for instance, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It was God's doing. I don't, I don't live. It's not me who lives. It's Christ. So therefore, most of Matthew 10, as we spend the next few weeks in it, is going to be descriptive. It's going, to be, it's going to be descriptive. It's going to describe what the, what the apostles were told to do, where they were told to go, how they were told to speak. 
It's not prescribed specifically to you. And nobody, nobody reading the grammar of 10.1 should say, yes, yes, I have authority over unclean spirits. No, really, honestly, Jesus gave his 12 disciples authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, heal every disease and every affliction. That's, that's, I don't care what translation you have, that's really clear. Nobody should read that and think, yeah, that's me. <coughs> but just because something is only descriptive does not mean there's implications for my daily life and how I relate to people, how I think about my ministry, how I act. It's also worth noting, by the way, that Judas, the one who betrayed Christ, was given, given these same commands, given the same authority, the same powers, yet his deception and defection would have awarded him that dreadful saying of Christ in 722 to 23. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So we should continue with carefulness, knowing that even miraculous signs and wonders healing of diseases and afflictions, casting out of demons, do not prove a person's salvation. What does then? It's only close communion with Christ, resulting in serving him faithfully throughout our days. And they're, they're honestly, seriously, the fact that Judas is listed among these 12 that are sent out and given this authority should actually really, really sink deep into our hearts and scare us. Just because somebody knows the Bible backwards and forwards does not necessitate their salvation. They could just be really smart. Just because somebody is able to... Uh, Oh, I'm, I almost said something really funny. You don't know what a hadoken is. But just because, just because somebody is able to throw their arms out and make people fall, out, fall over in front of them and feel as if they've passed out, that does not mean that they are capable of having salvation. Because even Judas had these powers, these wonderful things of prophesying and traveling with Jesus and being in, in his midst and yet Jesus could look at him on the day of his judgment and say, I never knew you, of his 12. Just because somebody appears holy on the outside doesn't mean they have the Holy Spirit inside. Only Jesus knew what Judas was going to do when he was betrayed, by the way. So Matthew inserting this is kind of anachronistic. It's out of time, right? So the disciples had no clue that Matthew was going to betray them. The apostles were actually stunned when it happened. So much so that in Matthew 26, the scenario plays out. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were all very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? They didn't know. They didn't know it was Judas. We do because we're reading this narrative. We're reading this, this, this little teeny thing, like who betrayed him. But they were, they were shocked. 
I'm certain that many of us will actually be surprised uh, who's not in the presence of the Lord when we come into his presence. We won't be shocked like the apostles, like, uh, you know, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? But we will be shocked. Now's the time for you who don't have salvation to turn to him. He died for the salvation of lost souls. Look to him, know his forgiveness, and do not prove to be a snake among the flock of God like Judas did. He went out, he did these miracles in Jesus' name, which means under his authority. That's actually what it means. When you pray in Jesus' name, it's, it's pleading for Jesus to grant that authority for that prayer to be heard and answered. But Judas did many mighty miracles in Jesus' name, and even with Christ's authority transmitted to him, but, but even Judas did those things to his own peril. So if you today feel a sense of fakeness in your faith, or if you're just an outright liar, repent. Repent before it's too late. Moving to our last few verses, um, verses 5 to 7, it's important to, again, not forget the purpose of these guys being sent out. They were sent out with this miraculous authority to go ahead of Jesus. And I said it before, it's because Jesus gave them authority to do these things to prove his ministry. Because not only, not only is Jesus actually doing these miracles in front of people, but now his own disciples are doing it. Imagine, imagine being in that time period where <coughs> maybe Thaddeus, let's choose Thaddeus because nobody knows about him. Let's say Thaddeus walks into your town. You're in the first century. He starts healing people, and you say, you say, how are you doing this? And he says, it's because Jesus of Nazareth gave me the authority to do this. Are you going to start worshiping Thaddeus? No, you're going to be Jesus of Nazareth. Man, I heard about it. I thought he was a teacher. I'm going to go find him. I'm going to go listen to him. I'm going to go talk to him. So Jesus gave the 12 this authority, again, to prove his ministry. How do I know that? How do I know that's the, the, the purpose of this power and authority? Well, if we were to look at Luke 10, we'd find an answer. So the power wasn't theirs, first off, so let's just remember uh, that, <coughs> that this was granted by Jesus. It was actually Jesus' authority and power, not their own. But then if we look at Luke 10, when the 72 I mentioned came back to Jesus after going out, they have a dialogue with him. Starting in verse 17, the 72 returned with joy, right? So they're told, go out, heal diseases, uh, cleanse lepers, uh, similar to what, <coughs> what we're going to read next week for the apostles. So they return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The power wasn't the point. And in fact, you might call Jesus an eternal killjoy right there. 
They're, they're coming back with joy. The demons are coming out. This is crazy. And Jesus says, don't be happy about that. Be happy instead that your names are written in heaven. Do not rejoice, they're told, at these miraculous things you're doing, but instead rejoice in the fact of your salvation. So in concluding our section, and before I make some final remarks and, and some implications from the text, I, I, I want to remind you again, and I've kind of beat you over the head with this, these statements are not to you. <laughs> They're not. In fact, we see some commandments of Christ that would uh, kind of seem kind of odd to us today, right? Uh, like one, go nowhere among the Gentiles or Samaritans. How many of you are Jewish? My hand can't go up. Nobody's hand went up. So, so go nowhere to the Gentiles or Samaritans. Stay among the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I can't do two of those three. <laughs> I am stuck in Oregon. How much is the, is the latest flight to Tel Aviv? <laughs> do you know? Do you know? I don't. <laughs> So most of us, again, I'm assuming and kind of verified, uh, we have Gentile blood. We are not Israelite. So therefore, are you commanded by Jesus, this, this, this very clear statement, go nowhere to the Gentiles. Are you listening to that? Repent. No. No. That, that's a command for the 12 apostles. You're not in the wrong when you go to this Gentile town of Toledo and preach the gospel to somebody. You are not in the wrong if you go to Newport. These words confirm that this was a command specifically for the apostles, don't they? Going only to the towns that were nearby Jesus and his ministry. Even that statement, <coughs> the kingdom of heaven is at hand, means not just like, nearby in terms of time it also means nearby in terms of geography in terms of space the kingdom of heaven is is near is uh, is at hand and he's actually one town behind me i just i just came here and i'm here to do the things that he told me to do but you should go find him the kingdom of heaven is at hand jesus is the king of heaven and therefore that kingdom is nearby Christ is not just a traveling king with an envoy working like an ambassador. That's actually our job, by the way, in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He was the king who was traveling into his own country that was living in rebellion. Their rebellion means, means to live against something. Good question. <laughs> so it's like when your daddy tells you to do something and you don't do it, you're living in rebellion. Yeah. So you and I in Toledo are still in God's kingdom. But we're living in an area that lives in rebellion against its king. And if you are actively living in rebellion, I'm going to look back at my screen. I'm not trying to call anybody out. Sorry, Gloria, I looked right at you. Uh, <laughs> but if you're living in active rebellion... I, got, I, I must remind you, there's grave consequences for rebelling against the king and rebelling against his kingdom. We can't go to the town behind us 
and see Jesus who's at hand like they did during the period of Matthew 10. But his kingdom is still at hand, friends. So this commandment, go nowhere among the Gentiles, that commandment is abolished in Acts 2. <coughs> when the Gentiles who are there begin speaking in tongues when Peter gives his sermon at Pentecost. So some commandments of God are temporary. So we are therefore to proclaim the gospel, the reconciling work of Jesus Christ on the cross for the salvation of souls here, now, and in Newport, and in Blodgett, and in uh, Burnt Woods. <coughs> Where you and I live, it needs the gospel. Sorry, I need a drink of liquid. I'm not going to say coffee because coffee's technically not allowed in the sanctuary, and I'd be living in rebellion if I were drinking coffee in here. Uh, <laughs> so, in closing, there's there's three primary implications of this text, this descriptive text, where I've just I've just lectured you on facts. That's all I've done so far, um, and called you to repentance if you're Gloria. But, <laughs> but, uh, but there's three implications that we can derive from this descriptive text um, that we can all derive. So implication number one, we do not have the same authority as the apostles, nor do we have the exact same commandments. Therefore, we must put all our hope and trust in the Lord and his authority constantly, unendingly. If you are sick, pray. <coughs> If you're possessed, pray. If you know somebody who's possessed, pray for them because it's ultimately under the Lord's authority on whether or not they are delivered from it. Uh, implication number two, <coughs> even if someone knows the Bible well or performs signs and wonders um, or, is, or has been provided incredible mercy, it doesn't mean they're saved like Judas. Therefore, we must challenge others and ourselves to have that close communion with Christ and be reminded constantly of the gospel and its implications on our lives and our attitudes. Implication number three, where the king reigns is where the kingdom is. <coughs> it's always at hand. It's always nearby. Even though not like the day when Jesus walked the earth, we can't just go to the town back and, and, and see him. But we must not live or encourage others to live unholy lives with deceptive hearts as if the kingdom was not at hand. We have to live lives of repentance, leaving behind all that hinders us from delighting in God and his kingdom. So even the descriptive portions of scripture are authoritative they're filled with necessary truths and implications for our daily lives. I've tried to illustrate that. Even though this is not to us, it's also for us. So what is for us? That we derive the truths and we live, <coughs> we live in accord to it. So let's go ahead and pray. God, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that we can labor in it and we can try to <coughs> understand it and we can try to apply it to our lives. We can try to grow 
and even something like Matthew 10, 1 through 7, which has commandments that are very clearly not to us, and, and special authorities that are not ours, we can rejoice in the fact that you, being king, have given those to your apostles. You proved your ministry. You did your work. Therefore, let us glorify you. Let us exult. Let us, let us be grateful in praise and adoration for you and who you are. The fact that you, Jesus, had the authority to even give these things to these 12 men. But let us not rejoice in the fact that they had that power. Let us rejoice in the fact that our names are in heaven. They are written in your book. And if they're not, Lord, give us repentance. To your glory and honor and fame forever and ever. Amen. I like to give thanks for the descriptive portions of scripture. Not just because... I will one day experience uh, the, the glory and majesty of the Lord, but because I love hearing the exploits of God. The whole Bible is a testimony of what God, God has done, and if we think about it like that, that's why it's authoritative, because it's what he has done. Bless him and, and, and thank him for his authority, and live with its implications. Go in peace, saints, and specifically, go to the fellowship hall for the Baptist Holy Day. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs>